Let's go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Continue on in our study. As we come to our passage today, um, we've been reminded of a number of theological themes that we've seen throughout, and you'll hear me repeat these themes um, in our in our study. The first one, obviously, is that the Lord saves. That's pretty clear in the in the book of 1 Samuel. We also see that the Lord opposes the proud but exalts the humble. We see that reflected multiple times through especially the character studies. At our elder meeting this Wednesday, Steve um, led our devotion time and um, kind of looked at uh, Saul. And we had talked just briefly about how, boy, you could just do a character study on this and see all the contrast between the characters. And one of the um, themes that we see in those contrasts between the characters are that God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. You know, you look at Saul and his um, opposition to God because of his arrogance and his pride compared to somebody like David, who is very humble in the fact that God exalts David. In fact, um, I was working on um, another chapter uh, last night and uh, looking at the number of times it says that David prospered because the Lord was with him and how Saul dreaded him because of it. And so we see these themes. And so um, God opposing the proud and exalting the humble is one of those themes. And then another theme, third and final one, is that God protects his people, but he destroys those who actually oppose him. So he not only opposes the proud, but he actually ends up destroying the proud. Um, He also protects his people. So we see those themes throughout. And so we've seen those in these first um, seven chapters here. We see how the Lord blessed Hannah and Samuel, his humble servants. We see him oppose Eli and his wicked sons. Um... We see how he destroys the wicked priests who profaned the Ark of the Covenant. Remember when God wiped out all of the priests in the Levite city because they had profaned the Ark of the Covenant? We see, even see his favor return to Israel even after they confessed their sins by providing them with not just victory over the Philistines, but lasting peace through Samuel's judgeship. And so when Israel finally humbles themselves and comes back and confesses their sin the Lord then raises them up. And so we see that principle at work there. With all that in mind, it now brings us to chapter 8, which in some respects is a rather striking chapter. You guys are familiar with it. You've probably, um, this is a popular passage that gets preached fairly often, but it's where Israel actually now demands a king. And what's striking about it is because of the contrast that it sets up with what God has done for them. So let's go ahead and break this down today. We're going to look at the first five verses here where Israel actually initiates their demand for a king. Read verses 1 through 5 with me. It says, And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us judge us like all the nations. So it says here Samuel is old. He was probably about 60 years old or so. Um, I'm 50, turning 53 this month, so 60 doesn't sound all that old to me. But um, he was considered old in this text. And his two sons, Joel and Abijah, 
were appointed by him to serve as judges over Israel. But we find here that his sons had become corrupt. They had followed the ways of the priests, actually. It says in verse 3, His sons, however, did not walk in Samuel's ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. You know, it's interesting because we... We see in the scriptures that, you know, if we raise our kids right and we train our kids right, we're told that they won't soon depart from it. But at the same token, there's no guarantees and promises that our children um, will walk in the ways of their parents. There's a much greater chance that if they have wicked parents that they'll walk in their wicked ways. But there are no absolute promises that our children will follow in our footsteps. Our hope and our prayer is that they do. But this is an example here where... Everything we see about Samuel is that he was a godly man, fearing the Lord. Um, And yet, somehow his sons chose to follow in the footsteps of the priests and were corrupt. You know, the law gives specific rules for judges. Deuteronomy chapter 16, I'm going to read it to you. It says this, You shall appoint for yourselves judges and officers in all your towns which the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And what we see with his two sons here is that they basically violated all of these. They were supposed to judge with righteous judgment. It says they didn't. They were not to distort justice, which they did. They were not to be partial, which they were. They were not to take a bribe, which they did. They were to pursue justice and only justice, which they did not. So they were guilty on all accounts. So the leaders of Israel decide to do something about it. They take advantage of two things here. Samuel's age and the corruption of his sons. Notice they say in verses 4 and 5, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like the other nations. Now in some respects, you can see that the demand was, was justified. The judges that Samuel had appointed were not good judges. And so with that in mind, Israel has every right to demand new judges, do they not? Especially with what we read in the law. But there are some false pretenses here. Notice that that's really not the reasons. That's the reasons they use. They go to Samuel because, well, Samuel, you're really old, and your sons aren't any good, so you need to do something different. You see, it's reasonable and even righteous for them to demand new leadership, but wasn't righteous was to demand a whole new way of being governed. Because the law, as we just read, pointed out that they were to be governed by God through righteous judges. But what Israel demands here is to change the way in which they were governed. And you notice the way they wanted to be governed? The text tells us they wanted to be governed just like every other nation around them. And who were the nations that were around them? They were Canaanites. They were paganless or pagan cultures, godless cultures being governed by, to be real frank, wicked, wicked kings. And Israel says, basically, we want to be judged just like them. Now, I'm sure they weren't saying we want to be judged by wicked kings. You know, it's like anything else. It's sort of like, uh, you know, I don't know if you heard Hillary Clinton this week made a comment about how 40% of Democrats are all socialists. 
So finally, a Democrat says, aside from Bernie Sanders, that they're a bunch of socialists, right? You look at what's happening with millennials in our, in our country and that right now, where socialism has failed everywhere it's been instituted around the United, around the world. And yet somehow we think we can do it here and do it right. Socialized medicine has been implemented all over the world, and it's a disaster. And yet somehow we think we can do it right here. You know how it's just sort of like, you always think you can do it right. So Israel's looking at these nations around them, these wicked, wicked nations, and they all have nasty kings. And yet somehow Israel thinks, well, but we can do it right. We need a king. It just doesn't work. God had told them how they were to be ruled. So this phrase actually reveals their real motives. They want it to be like every other nation around them. They have a king who they thought could protect them from their enemies. Now, what's weird about this is they had been at peace for a number of years now. Remember, God had delivered them from the Philistines and said that under Samuel's uh, rule, that they had experienced peace. And so this was at a time of peace that Israel saying they want to be just like the other nations. Now, there's some indication that it might be because there was an, Ammonite or an Amorite king named Nahash who had been kind of on the raise, or rise in the region, but there's no indication here that he had yet threatened them. But they might have been looking down the road thinking, well, there's those other nations are gaining some strength and some popularity. We better protect ourselves and we better get a king. Which means they had forgotten what God had already done for them. They, God had already delivered them from the most oppressive enemy they had, the Philistines. Which was a much greater threat than anything they were facing in the future at this point. At least in the immediate future. But yet somehow they thought they needed to change the way that they were governed. And they want it to be governed just like the other nations. So look at verses 6 through 9 and see what God does. He actually agrees to give them what they want. Verses 6 through 9, it says, But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing this to you also. Now then, listen to their voices, however you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure or the customs, is another way to describe it here, of the king who will rule over them. So Samuel, we find out, is distressed. So he takes it to the Lord and he basically shares it with the Lord. It says that he was displeased. So Samuel was distressed because he understood the serious nature of what they were asking. He knew that God's intent was not for them to be governed ultimately by a king. And what's interesting about that is God did make provision in the Old Testament. God knew this day was coming, so he made provisions in the Old Testament for how, how a king was supposed to behave. But it wasn't ultimately what God desired for them. It's possible Samuel took it personally here. You know, the fact that God starts up by saying, look, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. Samuel had governed them successfully for at least 40 years here. He had served in the Lord's temple since he was just a little boy. And yet the people are saying, eh, give us a king. So he might have taken that a little bit personally. But God reminds him that they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me ultimately in being their king or being their uh, ruler. And we find here that their rejection of this was actually rejection of God. Um... I want you to look at 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 chapter 10, First Samuel 10, verses 17. Get a little bit deeper picture of what's going on here. Look at verse 17. We'll just read three verses or so. 
Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you today have rejected God, who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses. Yet you have said no, but set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. So when God says that they were rejecting him, he has some history, doesn't he? God says, look, I took you out of Egypt. I rescued you from, from the most powerful kingdom at that time. I took you into the wilderness. I protected you there from all the enemies around you. This little unprotected group of wanderers wandering through the wilderness with no weapons of any kind, yet God protects them from their enemies. Brings them into the land of Canaan, where they're filled with Canaanites who were brutal, and yet God allows these group of farmers to enter into the land and defeat their enemies. And he says, with all of that, and yet you still... Reject me and ask for an earthly king, as if he can do any better than I can. And so this was an outright rejection of the Lord's leadership and direction in their lives. So God reminds Samuel of that pattern. Like all the deeds, he says in verse 8, which they have done since the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. In other words, God says, this is just a habit. It's a pattern of Israel. Doesn't surprise him, doesn't shock him. Ever since I brought them out of Egypt, even though I've protected them from their enemies, I've taken care of their calamities, I've rescued them out of their distress, this is just a habit. They keep doing it. They keep rejecting me for other gods. This is nothing new, Samuel. God's really totally in control here, isn't he? You know? Samuel's the one that's in distress. God's not shocked by it. He says it's basically what they've been doing ever since they were kids. You know, what's interesting about this is this wasn't the first time they had called for a king. There was a particular judge. Anybody remember who he was? There was a judge that had rescued Israel, and they asked him to be their king. Anybody remember who that was? It was Gideon. Turn to Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8, verse After Gideon had rescued Israel, or a portion of Israel, remember they were more localized, so Gideon was over a particular area, not all of Israel. But it says in Judges chapter 8, verse 22, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. So basically, they had already tried to make Gideon king. They wanted an earthly king. And if you notice, they said there, we want your son's son to rule over us. In other words, what they wanted was a dynasty to be set up. They wanted a kingship like every other nation. But Gideon was wise enough to say, no, that's not a good thing because God's your king. God rules over you. Gideon recognized his role as simply a judge, that he wasn't to become king. So this wasn't the first time that Israel tried to do this. Now, in that case, it got rejected. This time around... God directs Samuel to go ahead and heed their request. But he tells them, but you're going to warn them first. In other words, give them one last opportunity to come to their senses. Verse 9 of our text this morning says, Now then, listen to their voice, God says. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure or 
what would be considered custom or behavior of the king who will rule over them. In other words, make sure they really understand what they're asking, Samuel. Make sure they really understand what they're going to get when they ask for a king. So Samuel does just that. Look at um, verses 10. We'll read a number of verses here. Samuel actually mentions two consequences to Israel. What will happen if they follow through with their request for a king? Starting in verse 10, he says, So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. He said, This will be the procedure or the custom of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and reap his harvest, and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and for cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and your vineyards and will give to his officials and his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants um, and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Notice here that it mentions two primary consequences. The first one is that the king would take and take, and take, and take from the people. In fact, that word take is used six times in this passage. One of the best rules of Bible interpretation is look at the words that are repeated, because the author is trying to make a point. And he does that here six times. He says that he would take their sons for military service, for working his fields. He says that he would take their daughters to be perfumers, and to work in his, basically his royal palace. He would take the best of their farm and their grain says he would take a tenth of their crops to feed his army and his own servants. He would take their servants and their donkeys and their livestock for him. It says that he would take their flocks to feed probably his military and his royal palace. And then lastly, that, he would, that they would ultimately become the king's servants. They would be indebted to him for his service. And so this king would take and take and take. Now, what's interesting about that is you think about this. In many of these instances, God had taken them into battle and would fight their battles for them. Israel suffered oftentimes insignificant losses, if you will, compared to their enemies because God would do things like confuse the enemies. They would go out with plowshares and God would wipe out a military that was much bigger and stronger than them because God would fight the battles, right? But now in saying we need a king, that king now is going to need to establish an army. And it has to be a significant army. And so now you've got a draft. You're taking the families and making young men serve. We do that here, you know, when we get to times of, of, of war in the past where we had to basically institute a draft. Take sons and daughters. Draft them into the military. Send them off to war only to have them killed. And then taxes go up because we have to fund that military, right? Think about back in the days of World War II where there are certain restrictions put on things, you know? I don't know if you guys remember, you weren't alive then, but when they made pennies out of, what was that? Steel. Steel. You know, because you need the copper and the zinc for military purposes. You know, there's sacrifices everybody has to make. And so he warns them, you know, up until, that, up until this point, they didn't have to worry about that. But now they would. So he would take and take and take. The second consequence is related, and it's that they would ultimately, in the end, be burdened by that. And they would cry out, it says, in that day, 
because of what this king would do to them, and it says the Lord's not going to answer them. In other words, this is irrevocable. You're going to ask for a king, you're going to get a king, and then when you wish for the days where I were your king, you're not going to get it. You're going to keep the king. And we see that here. As Saul becomes king, they transition from a judge-ruled society to a kingship. And look at Israel's history. They go through periods of some good kings, but mostly bad kings. And those bad kings are really, really bad kings. And cause Israel a tremendous amount of hardship because those kings lead them into wickedness and idol worship and ultimately into captivity in Babylon. And so all that God tells them here comes true. And God does, never takes away the king. So the second consequence is that they'll beg, they'll cry out to God for relief from what the kings will do and God will not change it, will not answer it. So what do you think the leaders of Israel do with that? Do you think they heed God? Do you think they go, oh yeah, that's not, we didn't envision that. We didn't, no, not at all. Look at what happens in verses 19 through 20. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the other nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to all the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So when they hear Samuel's warning, they actually hardened their hearts and refused Totally rejected. Now remember, Samuel had been a good judge. This wasn't just, you know, some politician. Samuel had led them well. He was a good judge. He was righteous. They'd experienced peace. You would think they would at least listen to his counsel. But they completely reject his counsel. They have no interest in hearing it. No, there's going to be a king over us, Samuel. We want to be like all the other nations. And we want this king to judge us. Not those that God appoints. We want them to fight our battles for us. In other words, rather than God. They had forgotten all that God had done before. I, that boggles my mind. I, I, I would love to say that I'm, I'm better than that. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I'd love to say that if I were sitting there thinking, wow, I remember that last battle against the Philistines before God finally put, put them at rest, or put us at rest with them. Wow, God kind of confused all of them, you know, and they all kind of killed each other, and we totally destroyed those people, and we didn't have to do much to lift even our fingers. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'd like that. That God should do that for us. I don't want a king because I'd rather have that. But you know what? I don't know that I would. I'd probably be just like the rest of the Israelites, you know, because we have a tendency to forget, don't we? we? Forget what God does sometimes. And that's exactly what Israel did here. So they said, no, we, Samuel, we, we'd rather have a king to fight our battles for us. We want to be like every other nation. We want to be just like them. And once again, Samuel takes his concern to the Lord. And the Lord says, listen to their voice. Sure. This may be evident in the context, but I confess I have reread this mm-hmm. in a little while. Um, is it explicitly that they... Is it, is it possible that they simply forgot what God had done for them and thought that they had done it themselves? In other words, they won these battles against the Philistines. Did, is it possible that they thought they actually did it under their own power and, didn't, and forgot that God actually fought the battle and won it for them? 
You know, it's a good question. And therefore, didn't need God. I think it's a good question. I think part of it probably has to do with, with something we actually see here, which is that we have a tendency sometimes to sort of forget what God does for us. It's sort of like, you know, James in chapter 1 says that we're to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. And he uses a very important word next, knowing that the testing of our faith. And that word knowing is an experiential word for knowledge. What James tells us is, in some respects, is consider it joy and reflect back on what God has done. And in doing so, you'll know that he uses trials to perfect us. And so James calls us to not forget what God has done. And so he, in essence, says, you should be able to consider this trial joy because you know what God has done in the past. He calls us to that because I think he knows we have a tendency to forget. And I think we will all admit that there are times where we face a difficult situation and we worry a little bit. And yet, if we really sat back and say, yeah, I don't have to worry because God always seems to deliver me. So we have a natural tendency to forget, which is probably true with Israel. You know, Samuel had been a judge for at least 40 years. Um, I don't know how long it had been since the Philistines had attacked him last year, but I'm going to guess maybe 20 years. Okay? Maybe they just simply forgot. You know, or like you had mentioned here, just kind of, well, yeah, we kind of fought that battle. We were out there too, you know? The other part of it is you have generations that age and you have younger ones come up. Look at what's happening in our nation today. You know, I was watching, I was watching Fox News today where um, a guy went out and interviewed a bunch of people at, um, is it, what's the, the um, university named after George Washington? Is it George Washington University or is it like Mason University? I don't remember. But it's George Washington, it's a university named after George Washington. And they have a mascot that's a colonial mascot. And they want to, they want to change that because colonialism is a bad thing. But what was interesting is they were asking him about, well, should we change the name altogether? And most of these people were like, well, you know, George Washington, you know, back in the 1700s, yeah, he was a good guy back then, but that doesn't apply to today. And it was basically, um, my, my point is here that as you look at this, we have this whole generation of millennials coming up right now that don't understand our constitutional principles and what made this country great. A large majority of them believe in socialism which, again, has crushed the world. So when you get a new generation that comes up that doesn't think like its parents in many respects, that generation becomes a a bold voice calling for change. And I would imagine there's some of that too, because as we look through the book of Judges in the 400-some-odd years, and how Israel just goes through these cycles, much of that was probably the next generation coming up that forgot. And Judges tells us that, that they forgot what their parents knew. And so that's probably part of it, too. So we probably have a generation here that maybe some of the younger folks had risen up and had grown up and now were somewhat adults and they're crying for a king because they want to be like every other nation. Much like here. How do we do it in Europe? Exactly. Look at the young, the millennials now, wanting us to be just like Europe with the socialized medicine um, and a loss of all these constitutional rights, the, the loss of free speech. They want to be just like Europe. They look at Europe. They lo- even look at places like, um, uh, you know, led by Chavez and, and others, these dictators, and they're, I mean, they're saying, look at those great leaders and countries. And you think, what are, what are you missing here? And that might have been going on too here in Israel as the generations, the younger kids come up and they want to be just like the nations around them with a king because it works for them. And they forget God. I, so you can't give a concrete answer, but that's likely what's going on here. Probably a mix of those things. And partly because we do see that in the book of Judges where we're told that they didn't know the Lord like their parents did. And that's probably the case here. 
Now, it is the leaders that are coming forward, which is interesting, too, because look at what our leaders do today. I'm thinking about, you know, I was watching Fox News this morning as they were talking about this, and I wanted to shout at the TV, you know, it's because the parents are letting them get away with it. Instead of the parents saying, are you nuts? And re-instructing them on how to properly think about things, we cave in. You know, we give them all their safe spaces, and we ban, take all the stuff out because it's offensive, you know, and we let them get away with it, if you will. And leaders do that oftentimes. They cave to what the voices say. And I suspect that's the case here, too, where these elders of Israel that came to Samuel probably were listening to some voices. May very well have known um, that it was wrong. At least you'd expect them to. So, good question, though, Dave. Makes us think. So what does that do? What do we do with all this text then? What's the the primary thing we can draw away from this? There's a couple of things I want to point out that I think stand out in this text as we look through this. The leaders of Israel rejected God and settled for a human solution, even, even though they knew or should have known because God had demonstrated over and over and over again that he was faithful. I mean, they have hundreds, not just a generation, but hundreds and hundreds of years of God's faithfulness in delivering them and caring for them, and yet they give up that for a human solution to their problem. There's no question that they had enemies outside, and, and there's. I think it's reasonable to say, wow, what's going to protect us from those enemies? What they should have done is said, let's look at, their, look at our past. God has always protected us from our enemies. So going forward, God will continue to protect us from our enemies, but instead, they started scheming, well, we need a king who's going to have an army, and he'll be able to fight our battles and protect us going forward. So they opted for a human solution in spite of the fact that God had proven over and over and over and over again his faithfulness to them. Makes me ask this question, do we ever fail to trust God when we face challenges, even though he's more than proven himself to us? Am I the only one that struggles with that sometimes? I like to say, no, I'm more mature than that. But I think the reality of it is I still get worried. I still get frustrated. You know, I think I've shared with you folks some of the struggles I have at at my job. And, um, you know, more recently I've learned I've been doing an awful lot of whining and complaining about it. Um, instead of really looking at it as, you know, God's always been faithful. Always taking care of me. Always provided, you know. Um but sometimes I fall back into the trap or begin to worry a little bit or get frustrated a little bit, and I realize, no, no, you know what? There's no place for that because God has proven himself faithful over and over and over and over again. I'm 52, and he's never failed me. Why do I still worry? Why do I still get frustrated and upset and get concerned when he's proven himself over and over and over again? A second thing I'd like to point out here is that even in opposition to God's word, and even when they were warned by a godly prophet, Samuel, they stiffened their resolve for a king. Do you ever want something so bad that you're willing to do anything to get it? you ever do that as a believer? Maybe not blatantly, but maybe where you manipulate certain things, you know? Say certain things, do certain things to kind of make the circumstances turn out exactly the way you want it, and, and yet, you know, maybe that's not exactly the best thing or the most righteous thing to do. You know, you guys know that we had a situation not too long ago where um, somebody broke into our home, and um, 
to be real frank, we had to think through, how are we going to handle that? What's our responsibility? What's our role? Do we get authorities involved with it? Do we not get authorities involved with it? And there's an element over here where you might want to say, well, throw the book at them. But there's the other side over here that says, well, wait a minute, we want to be gracious and merciful just like God has been with us. And trying to find the balance sometimes. And Amy and I have had to talk about that. What do we do? How far do we go? To try to make sure that we're not manipulating it so that we get the result that we want to get. And we've been resolved to not do that. And we've been resolved to allow God to work, but at the same token trying to do what we think is probably the right thing for us to do within the, the structure that God has provided for us to do that. But to try to be careful that we're not manipulating it to get the end result that we really want. And that's exactly what Israel was doing. They wanted this king, and so they're coming up with a way to scheme with Samuel. Oh, you're old, and you're son. Instead of simply saying, you know what, Samuel, we know you're getting old, and your sons aren't very good, so find some new judges for us. Because we want to do the biblical thing here. We want to do what God says. I'm sure God would have said in the heartbeat, I'll take care of that. We'll get you some good judges. But that's not what they do. I want to be like every other nation. A third thing is that we see this contrast between Samuel and Israel. When Samuel was faced with a challenge, what did he do? Twice now we see him go to God. He goes and talks to God about it. He goes and petitions God about it. says that he's distressed. Israel, when they have a problem, when we got these enemies on the horizon, immediately come up with a human solution. They never ask God in this text. They never stop to pray. They never seek Samuel's counsel. He's the voice of God. They never sought any of God's counsel on any of this at all. They simply came up with a solution. Here's a solution. And when Samuel says it's not a good solution, they stiffen their resolve and they say, well, no, you don't understand. That is the solution, Samuel. That's the solution you're going to give us. Do we ever do that? You know? Ever find yourself in a position where you stiffen your resolve, even when all the counsel seems to be pointing in the other direction. I'll be real frank, I do sometimes. I'm not proud of it. Think about husband-wife relationships sometimes, where your wife is speaking some counsel and you stiffen your resolve, or your husband speaking. Amy can probably attest to that. She does that all the time. No. I think I do it. So we see this contrast between how Samuel handles it and how the people of Israel handle it. Lastly, one last thing I want to point out here is one of the things that probably stands out the most of this passage to me is that it demonstrates the long-suffering and patience of the Lord. Doesn't it? God had demonstrated over and over and over again um, what he was willing to do to protect Israel. And yet Israel continued to reject that over and over and over again. But here we are, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, where Israel is now in probably the most blatant way rejecting God. You'd almost expect the book to end. You know what, Samuel? Man, I've had it, dude. I am done with these people. So give them a king. I'm walking away. But you know, we've got another, what, two-thirds of the book to go through. And much of that book is where God delivers them a gracious king, a king with his own heart. God could have kicked him to the curb, but he is long-suffering 
and patient with these wicked, disobedient children, if you will. He's a patient, long-suffering God. And you see that in this text. It's interesting, God, you know, there are times where God gets angry. You know, remember, he wiped out the priests. He had had it with the priests. But then we find things like this, where in the broader scheme of things, we see his patience as the overriding or more dominant character trait of God, isn't it? Compare the number of times that God is patient and long-suffering with his people over the number of times that he sort of finally judges them in his anger. And you find that there's so much more said about his long-suffering and his patience than the other side of that. And we see that even with people in general. You know, God has provided ample proof through his creation and through every generation that he exists. I mean, I, I love the fact that we sh- I shared this at the elder meeting the other night about how what's been really interesting in the last um, couple of years here is the amount of archaeological evidence that has surfaced proving the contents of the Bible. We have just re- just this last week alone, they've, d- they've been um, talking about how they discovered this city that really validates David's reign. Secular archaeologists for years have been saying David and Solomon never existed. And they're finding significant evidence that David and Solomon's reign did indeed exist. They just recently found two of these signet um, stamps for not only a king, but a prophet, Hezekiah, that proved these people were real. And there's been a significant... Oh, another, they just found the city that Peter and two other apostles lived in, that people that said didn't exist. You know, and so there's all this archaeological evidence recently that's coming out where it's almost as if God is saying, yeah, you don't have much time left. If you don't buy this evidence, there's no hope. And it's, so it's almost like as we converge and these events leading towards the end times are, are coming to the surface and things are getting much more difficult for Christians all over the world, at the same time, God is revealing more and more evidence that he, is, he exists, that he's there. And he went to the point of even putting his son on the cross for us. After thousands of years of him being constantly rejected, and here we are, 2,000 years since that final act of Christ, and yet God is still patient. You know what Peter says? Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, that the reason Christ hasn't returned yet, after 2,000 years now, is simply because God is long-suffering and doesn't want any to perish. Because Peter says, God will judge. And because God will judge, he's being patient until he has to make that final act. Long-suffering. You know, one of the things that's sort of um, bothered me to some degree is um, the closer we come to the end times, the more we hear Christians Cry out for Christ to return. How often have you heard that? Man, he's got to come back. He's got to come back. You know, he's got to come back. And I've always felt that way. It's like, yeah, I'm getting tired of this. He's got to come back. But then it dawned on me that when that happens, there is no hope. When God comes back, it's for judgment. He will rapture the church and he will immediately begin to pour out his wrath. That is a horrific thing. And so while I'm saying, hey, I'm sick and tired of being here, I'm just ready to go home, 
Please come back and take me. Please take your church out of here so we don't have to suffer anymore. At the same time that I'm saying that, I'm saying go ahead and judge those people and send them to hell for all eternity. Because that's exactly what's going to happen. And so Peter says, God is long-suffering. That's why he hasn't come back. Because God knows that the alternative, when he does, is wrath and judgment, which is permanent. But because he's long-suffering and he's patient, God is not in a hurry to rapture his church. Because he's long-suffering and he's patient, not wanting any to perish. So we see that in this text today where God is still being patient with Israel. He says, go ahead, give him a king. He's going to first give him kind of a wicked king in Saul. Maybe it's a life lesson. But then he's going to deliver up David, a man after his own heart. Probably one of Israel's greatest kings. So much, though, that he serves as a type of Christ. And so God is long-suffering and patient. Which makes us, and I'll close with this, makes us think about ourselves Kimberly brought up something yesterday. Um, I won't share the specific details, but she asked me a question, and it had to do with sin. And asked, um, if, when it comes to me, if sometimes that particular sin is something that's deliberate or something that just slips and happens. And we all know things like that. Maybe there's a particular issue you struggle with where it just it happens and it's not something you premeditate. And maybe it's something you struggle with, and you're like, hey, I hate that about myself. I just do that, and I know I shouldn't do it. But it's nothing deliberate you're trying to do. But then sometimes there are those things where you know it's wrong, and you just do it anyway. You know? And so she asked a very simple question about that. Is it, you know, which is it? And I said, you know what? It's both, honey. It's both. Sometimes I do that as your dad simply because it's just, I don't think about it, and it's just my behavior, and it's not right, and it, and it, it offends me, and it bothers me when I do that. Because it's just wrong. But it's not something I'm trying to do. And I said, you know, there's those other times, honey, where I am just so stubborn and angry and frustrated that I do it anyway, even knowing it's wrong. What's remarkable about that is that God is long-suffering and patient with me, just like he is Israel. What an amazing God, isn't it? What an amazing God. I'm thankful that that's the kind of God we serve. When the New Testament tells us that the Old Testament is a tutor to lead us to Christ, one of the things we can take away from that is God is a long-suffering and patient God. Which means even after I get saved, when I still do some of those things that I'm struggling with and trying to grow and mature out of, that thank God he is the same God he was with Israel as he is with me because I know he's patient and long-suffering with me even at those times. So I can't point my finger at Israel here. I can't say, look at those idiots. They should have known. What I should be doing is going, <laughs> I'm kind of like them sometimes. And thank God he's long-suffering and patient.